Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm speaking with Anne Bayo, the author of From Handwriting to Footprinting, Text and Heritage in the Age of Climate Crisis. From Handwriting to Footprinting was published by Open Book Publishers in 2023. How do we currently preserve and access texts, and will our current methods be sustainable in the future? In From Handwriting to Footprinting, NBIO seeks to answer this question by offering a detailed analysis of the methods that enable access to textual materials, in particular access to books of literary significance. This book provides an overview of the changing boundaries of access to literary heritage over centuries, deconstructing the Western tradition of archiving and how it has led to current digital dissemination practices. Rigorously examining the negative environmental impact of digital publishing and archiving, Bio proposes an alternative model of preservation and dissemination, which reconciles fundamental traditions with the value of social responsibility and sustainability in an era of climate crisis. Anne Bayo is professor of German studies with a focus on digital humanities at Le Mans Université. Anne, welcome to New Books Network. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, before we get started talking about your book, would you mind introducing yourself to listeners? I would love if you could share a little bit about where you grew up, what kind of path your education took, and what brought you to the work that you're doing now. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for asking that. Uh, it's a, Actually, it's really part of the whole story of the book, so it's nice. Um, I was born in France, and I went to school in France, and I started to learn German at school when I was like 12 or 13, and discovered that I really love languages in general at that point. And that's also the time when I started to gather old family papers and started writing myself. When I then evolved and started to... Um, 
consider what I would study. I, what I really wanted to do was keep studying all aspects of text dissemination, everything that has to do with language, with literature, with history and philosophy. And that's why being in France, I decided to study German studies because when you're in this other language area, you get the whole package of like language, literature, history, etc. And that's uh, when I, during my studying time where I had my first longer stays in Germany, and after I completed my PhD, I stayed in Germany for 15 years, um, especially because I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to have my own research group. Um, it was funded by the German Research Foundation for six years, and the whole group worked on intellectual networks in Berlin um, in the late 18th, early 19th century. And with that uh, that grant from the German Funding Foundation. I had a group of seven people and we worked on archival material. And that's also the moment where with the whole group, I moved to working um, in a very traditional way with archival material to um, using digital methods to publish this archival material. So that's the point where I started to work on my digital edition, Letters and Texts, Intellectual Berlin around 1800, which was really seminal for what came after that. In that edition, um, it's a digital scholarly edition in which I decided with my group to really break the boundaries of canon-based editorial approaches of literature with this idea that you can put letters, which are minor genre, at the same level as literary texts in themselves, and to see how by considering these types or, or these genres of text as equivalent or as um, having a similar value, you can get more out of both the letters and the text themselves. And the big difference also uh, between this digital scholarly edition and the way I had worked before is that it was fully open access, really reachable without any barrier, without, without having to pay for anything. It's just, if you have the link, you get on the page. And I had that feeling that um, I could reach the whole world with my work, which was really making things very different from working in a very niche field, actually, basically. I then went back to France for my habilitation thesis, that's very French, and reached in an analysis on the relationships between publishers and writers from the late 19th to the early 20th century. That's one part of the habilitation, and the other part was a more theoretical work on archives in the digital age. And based on this habilitation, I got my current professorship for German studies with a focus on digital humanities. And that's the position I have since 2017. Um, and um, the climate related aspects of my work have been a growing focus of my interest since COVID. Actually, I think COVID was a time where many of us like reassessed our focus of interests. So that's the moment for me where I started like to um, taking this more into account in my work. I joined French research networks working on this question of the impact of the climate crisis. And in these networks, I received training and I have colleagues from various disciplines I can talk to. And um, based on that, I initiated several working groups myself in Germany and um, more globally. And now I'm working on training schemes for humanities researchers and heritage professionals in order to strengthen this focus on the impact of the uh, climate crisis on the way we work, both in the humanities and in heritage um, uh, um, institutions. 
Fantastic. Thank you. And I can see like how all of those threads come together um, in this book. And especially I love that you mentioned your childhood fascination with old papers. Maybe that will come up again in our conversation. Uh, so turning then to this book from handwriting to footprinting, could you talk a little bit more about how the book came to be and, and what some of your hopes and goals were for this project? So when I, uh, when I started considering writing a book, it had to do with the fact that most of my publications, since I'm um, working in France, but in German studies, most of my publications are in German or in French, and I have a split readership, which is also very limited, actually, if you consider them separately. Uh, I've been wanting to, to publish more in English for a long time, and the idea to write a book in English was really to um, expand a bit my existing scholarly readership, but also to go beyond scholarly readership and reach a wider audience. Um, my habilitation thesis, which I just mentioned, was like half in German and the other half in French. And my idea was really to present a synthesis of all of that, which is actually putting together the last uh, 25 years of my work. Um, and the idea was really to do that in an accessible manner, uh, which is why I chose to uh, publish it with Open Book Publishers, which is fully open access. Um, also, it was also a choice to limit the amount of footnotes. I'm not usually writing in um, in that in such a light way somehow, and to have a rather short book in an accessible language that really was important for me, and focusing also on the lessons learned along the way over the past 20, 25 years, um, to um, reflect on the two major shifts which I have been experiencing in my scholarly practice, which is for one, the shift to digital media, and the second would be realizing the impact the climate crisis has on my scholarly practice. So my goal with this book is really to uh, show how these shifts change the way we consider texts, especially literary texts, and the way in which these shifts will have a lasting impact on heritage strategies, the strategies we have as a society in the global north. Um, there's also, I think, in writing this book, uh, a dimension of education to digital literacy, because talking to my students, talking also to my colleagues from the humanities, I have the sense that they're still very much unaware of the connections between traditional theoretical approaches of archiving, of editing, of publishing, and the empowerment that is brought about um, on the one hand by technologies, and on the other hand by, let's say, eco-feminist approaches that criticize technologies in a fruitful manner. So this book was really composed of rearranged parts of my habilitation thesis and a more experimental part on basically how can we proceed from here considering the constraints of the climate and biodiversity crisis. Yeah. Uh, well, so let's let's start with talking about the first section. Um, overall, in the book, you're talking about these like core cultural and and scholarly practices for making text available, so that you can explore how the transition to digital raises questions about environmental impact. And in the first chapter, you look at the process and practice of archiving. How do you understand the ways archives shape the dissemination of texts? And then how do you see archival practices changing through the 20th century 
to account for more complex media and for the shifting sociocultural relevance of archiving. So when we talk about um, archives in general, it can actually um, mean three different things. It can mean the collection of old papers themselves. It can mean the institution that hosts these collections. And it can mean the building uh, that hosts the institution. So archives are all of that in one. And their role is to collect papers and to make them accessible for later consultation. And that involves a series of steps that actually do shape the dissemination of the text they keep. Um, one very important aspect of this dissemination process is selection. So the, the general idea of archiving is that you know from the onset that you will not be able to or not even want to keep everything. There will be some sorting, selecting, and some uh, elements that will be discarded. For instance, some archives, they, their goal, their mission is to keep legal material, and that's the only thing they will have. Others will have only administrative documents, and others will have literary texts, for instance, literary texts from one specific author. So the, this dimension of selection is important because it's really at the core of the archiving process, and it's something that we can still find today. It's really um, <clears throat> an important thread to understand how... how um, the way uh, we can envision archiving today relates to the way uh, archiving has always worked. There's another point that is really important to understand how um, archiving really shapes the dissemination of text is um, the way it um, offers an, a form of organization. You need to have a system to find what you are looking for in an archive. It's this systematic uh, uh, organization that is at the core also of archival technical techniques. So recording principles, recording techniques um, mean concretely that, for instance, the description of the content is important, the folder names are important, the numbering is important, and all these techniques are there to facilitate the retrieval of information. And they have been in use for a very long time. You have archives in Athens, for instance, um, in the fifth century before Christ. And uh, these um, techniques, they not only have been in use for a long time, they also have been improved with time. So to come back to your second question, how archival practices change in the 20th century and shift somehow um, the social cultural relevance of archiving. Um, in fact, I think I could, we could say that digital media make the potential dissemination power of these archiving techniques even greater. Um, because digital archiving methods make the archiving steps more transparent. They um, make the articulation between data and metadata, these old description of contents that are so essential to recording, they make this articulation much clearer, much more transparent, and they also make much more transparent the identification of the iterations of a text, so the different versions you can have of a text. Um, the core philosophy of digital long-term accessibility builds technologies on top of centuries of archival practices and theories. And it's um, also a way of understanding bet better what text is by looking at the way digital media work with it. So if I <clears throat> take the example of literary texts, which are very, a very special case, very special types of archive, but also um, very representative of what, uh, what the point I'm trying to make here. So the 
political and sociocultural relevance of literary texts has emerged with the rise of nations, mostly in the 19th century in Europe. And at that point, the archiving strategies were really embedded in structures of power. And this precisely shows the importance of displaying authority on a text. And that's um, what the way literary archives were constructed a long time also shows. So for instance, um, if you know only one German author, you probably know Goethe. <laughs> um, and the way he envisioned his own personal archive is very interesting because at the end of his life, so he lived for a long time for, for considering the period when he uh, has been living. Uh, living. And uh, so um, when he grew older, he started preparing two things. One was the final edition of his oeuvre, so all of his works and an archive of his life and work. And he did that with the help of several secretaries. So he had gathered all of his papers. He had retrieved some papers, for instance, uh, letters he had sent to other people. He asked the other people to send the letters back to get everything together. So um, he had put everything in one room and tried starting sorting it and his secretaries would then proceed to the recording. And there is this notion in the way he tried to set up the archive of his life and work that controlling all these layers of text that was written by his hands would be a powerful tool to ensure his everlasting canonization somehow. So um, the, the argument he was making at this point to justify all the effort that was put into this archive of his work is that he, he always keeps saying that he owed it to the, to the nation. So there's really this strong political link to, um, to uh, the structures of power at a more general level. And this archive that Goethe set up of his own life and work uh, is the basis for what will then become the first German literary archive ever founded at the end of the 19th century. So that's the Goethe and Schiller Archive in Weimar. Um, and it's really um, a good example of the way authors can consider the importance of the archival archiving step in, um, in building their own oeuvre. So one key element is um, for understanding how archive uh, shaped the dissemination of texts, that's the fact that basically, as I said at the beginning, selection is important and destruction will be part of the archiving process. And that is true for analog and for digital archiving. So whatever the, uh, the media, we will not be able to keep everything. We will have to make choices. We, we have always had to. And just the same, we can't keep all the versions of all texts. And this idea that understanding how we select, why we select, and for what we select, uh, why we are archiving, is really fundamental to understand also the missions um, of, of archivists in general and all these archiving processes more generally. Yeah, thank you. I'm really glad that you um described all of these um, ways that we can see archives giving power and authority, because that was something that came through really strongly for me in your writing. And I was really glad that you were so clear about that. And um, you've also mentioned, you know, that selection is always part of the work in an archive. And um, 
I wonder if you'd like to share that that anecdote that you share near the beginning of the book about bring, finding some of your own papers and bringing them to an archive. Um, what was that experience and how did that start your thinking <laughs> around archives? So that's really, it, it all started when I was rather young and I was really enthusiastic because we had this old family home and um, I, at first, my great grand aunt was showing me these papers and at some point there was a box and she didn't even know what was in there so I I opened the box and I realized wow these papers are like from another century like the 19th century and uh, okay it was not particularly interesting in content it was just ledgers and school notes etc but I thought it's so old it's probably very interesting and we have to keep that so i brought these documents to the local archive and what they said was that the documents were actually not old enough to be of relevance and not or not old and or original enough so actually i brought the box back home and i still have that box at home although probably in the meantime they might be considered old enough to be worth keeping at the local archive <laughs> Yeah, that's so funny because, I mean, as you point out, every archive wants something different and what is old enough for one archive might not be old enough for another. And all of that changes as I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll get into talking more about digital things. All of that changes also when we're looking at archiving things digitally. Um, but shifting um, to the second chapter, this is where you explore the work that publishing does to disseminate texts. Um, again, from the analog past to the digital present. So who has historically been involved in that process and how did the relationship between authors and publishers shift as we move into a digital age? So the goal of publishing is rather different from the goal of archiving because the goal of publishing is to disseminate numerous copies of the same text, while in an archive, generally it's like one original document that you want to keep in one place in order not to um, uh, lose it, so to speak. So the idea is for publishing is that it's about disseminating numerous copies of the same text via their mechanical reproduction or the mechanical reproduction of its content. And the goal is also, which is quite different from archive in general, to make money out of it. Um, in uh, So the way it works now um, appeared uh, in the modern era. In the pre-modern era, it was a bit different. In the pre-modern era, basically, printers would receive printing jobs from writers who were mostly working for a patron. And then, uh, so the patron was paying for uh, the work, and then the printers printed it, and the booksellers would sell the printed copies. And when this business shifted from butter trade to a money-based trade, that's the point where um, new uh, professions emerged. So the first one was the publisher, publisher as a profession. Um, and so that's... That profession appeared at the end of the 18th century, and the idea is that a publisher is somehow an investor who is facilitating access to printing and bookselling structures for writers. And this, um, um, the, the these publisher figures, they became powerful quite quickly. Actually, the late 18th, uh, early uh, 19th century, and at the same time, writers started emancipating from these patronage structures and to become um, 
more um, autonomous and wanting really to also not depend on um, a patron or another structure and try to really leave from, from what they were um, writing. So uh, in the early 19th century, you have two new professions emerging. On the one hand, publishers, and on the other hand, writers who really want to be considered as writers like professionally. And in the early 19th century, publications were really common endeavors of publishers on the one hand and writers on the other hand, and both had strong financial and emotional uh, interests in these texts that they were publishing together. And uh, basically, this, uh, this is exactly the tension that was at play trying to find a way to uh, articulate the identification of both publishers and writers with the text. Uh, also in the sense that both of them actually shape the text. They really work together on the wording, on uh, the way uh, the text looks like on a page, on size of volume, the uh, fonts that will be chosen, etc. So they really shape the text together and they decide together on the dissemination. So you will find, for instance, a lot of uh, letters of authors who would complain um, that publishers have done a sloppy job on their texts and have introduced mistakes because they consider that they should still have the only authority and the pub publisher is just there as an investor. So there's sometimes also a bit of a misunderstanding, let's say, between the missions of the two people involved in, in shaping this text. So if I take again the example of Goethe, it's really quite interesting because he had a very special relationship to his publishers. Um, and one that also shows how um, this is also a place where you could exert some sort of control on texts and text dissemination. So um, when Goethe was young, he experienced some bitter disappointments because some publishers refused the manuscripts, and other publishers made an unauthorized version of another manuscript of it or book of his so um when he became very famous he decided which which happened like practically from one day to the next um uh, he decided to always do three things with publishers so the first one is he would always have a third person another one negotiating for him with the publisher he would never do it by himself second he would always engage with the publisher without even showing the manuscript. So the publisher had to say yes or no without saying, seeing the manuscript. And third, he would let the publisher suggest the price. And that was a way to make sure that his work was properly valued. Um, and that's, he's the only one who has done that. And somehow it is also, uh, it shows how he had this sense of the strong authority uh, that the writer, the author should have compared to the role of the publisher. And actually, even Schiller, who was his friend, said that he was impossible when it come, comes to uh, publishing deals. So Schiller had been warning publishers. Um, and so I've been working a lot on that period of the early 19th century, which is interesting because um, it's really a period in continental history. It's a bit different in the UK, um, where copyright wasn't properly established. And it's interesting because this lack of regulation shows very clearly where the tensions are and where the interests might be diverging from one another. 
Also, it's interesting because it's challenging for historians of literature or historians of text in general to transmit this multiplicity of hands that are at work on the printed texts and sometimes in a kind of wild but arcane fight for authority. And these uh, working on this also on the difference between for instance, the manuscript of one text and the printed version, the published version of one text also raises the question of the editorial responsibility, our editorial responsibility, for instance, today, for instance, when uh, we work on texts and, and constitute them and present them as an herb, for instance. So there's there's um, we are shaping it also in some way. So that's basically what um, what it looked like in this modern era before copyright uh, became regulated. And if I jump then a few centuries later, so really a lot of centuries, sometime later, um, to the modern to the current period. So um, when you try to gain orientation, for instance, in digital publications. Um, there, there's some kind of sense of lost authority, like if anyone can publish anything, how can I know that something has editorial value uh, in online publications? Uh, and that shows that publishers still play a key role today because they are somehow um, also a way to assess the value of a text of a publication. And that's true for better and for worse, actually, because the consequence of that is that big tech companies um, still widely influence, for instance, the discoverability of publications uh, based uh, basically on their own financial interests, uh, for instance, by developing algorithms based on consumer profiles. So that's the, the completely opposite. Um, and in that sense, uh, and that's also why I've been trying to argue in favor of the open source and open access community is because this is really a community that um, makes an effort to counterbalance this domination mechanism and to make way for um, a more uh, distributed way uh, view of authority in um, the assessment of text. So the open source and open access community has been striving to develop quality criteria for digital texts, especially. And also the idea is to empower readers, sometimes um, also to maybe empower readers with more tools than they actually can master, which is also a problem. Like um, sometimes I, I tell my students, okay, well, you can just use this and do that, and they're completely overwhelmed and it's not helping them either. So there's um, also some, um, it's not it's not that simple some, somehow the, to um, um, assess the, um, the value of digital publications and also to bring people to be able to do that on their own. But what I think is, and what I've been trying to argue in the text, in the book is that there really is a common effort of the scholarly community and of heritage institutions to um, offer iterative and uh, distributed approaches of um, quality texts. For instance, there's more and more citizen science experiments trying to bring readership and audiences to contribute. And by contributing also, uh, people get familiar with the way it works, with the way um, 
quality criteria work. Uh, for instance, for my students, I, I always try to convince them it's worth trying to um, edit Wikipedia articles, because then you get to understand how it actually works. Um, yes, so it's it's not really easy to gain orientation in the digital world when it comes to, um, to publications, and I must say, in, it's very different uh, in the European context and in the US context, because there are very strong political efforts in the EU to strengthen um, the Open Access Initiative and also in particular to establish something like cultural commons and, and, heritage, and, and heritage is considered a common good in some way. Um, and in that context, um, digital media has been instrumental in making a wide array of textual material available to a wide array of the population. So really digital media has made access to text and especially access to quality text possible and has provided means to address preservation strategies on a wide uh, social basis. And that is really now possible and it was not before the advent of uh, digital tools. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the way we see these these threads of power and authority coming through again in the second chapter in these these two avenues of archiving and publishing. And um, it's so interesting to reflect on how everything is different, but also the same when we get into uh, digital <laughs> exactly. contexts. Um, and so the third chapter of your book really focuses on digital and you explore a number of, of um, social, economic and environmental costs of increasing the circulation of texts. How should our current system for disseminating text through archives and through publishing account for and be shaped by environmental issues? Yeah, so I've been talking about quality text before uh, because I wanted really to balance the fact that actually what one mostly sees when it comes to digital media is the increase in the quantity of textual information uh, that uh, that circulates and that makes it sometimes difficult to gain orientation and sometimes difficult also to escape the grasp of big tech companies. But um, um, I would still argue that digital media is an overall improvement, um, an overall improvement that comes at a cost 
like you said, a different level. So one is that there is still a very big divide in access to information in general between the global south and the global north for uh, a series of, of reasons. Um, another cause concerns the fact that there are very different regulation forms, like I said, between Europe and the US, for instance, and um, that means that most of the um, users of the internet uh, pay somehow for access to text with personal data. So the price is not just money, it's also privacy. Um, and using digital media like any activity, like any human activity, has an, an environmental impact, which is um, can be measured in, in a variety of ways. So it can be measured in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, for instance, but it can also be measured in terms of other forms of impact, impact on biodiversity, impact on water resources, when we think of, for instance, uh, books that can also be impact on wood resources uh, to produce paper. So um, what we see in the current archiving and publishing strategies uh, is that usually they don't really account for their environmental impact. The other aspects are mostly taken into account, but this one, or uh, people try to take them into account, but the environmental impact is really almost not considered. Um, and uh, in the uh, heritage world, so GLAM institutions, for instance, you can see already that there, there is an effort to measure this impact, but this the sole effort of measuring the impact is nascent, and we don't have frameworks, we don't have standards, we don't have workflows that would account for it, and that makes it really difficult, actually. How, even if you're realizing that this is an issue, what do we do? So how, how can you do anything about it? So. Um, um, that's what happened to me with my digital edition of Letters and Text Intellectual Berlin around 1800. I have been working for 10 years to provide a quality edition according to philological standards and according to digital standards. So basically, that's very complex digital philological work. And really, all the time, I was motivated by the idea that I would provide access to a wide array of people and that I would improve, improve knowledge and culture at large, globally, etc. And there was this moment of awakening when I realized first that not everybody can access my digital edition, because if you have slow internet, if you have an older computer, you can't really cope with the quantity of information that is displayed on a standard web page, basically. And second, because all of these technical requirements, like for instance, making um, the digital scholarly edition accessible 24 seven has a high environmental impact. So basically those people who can't access my digital edition, people basically from the global South, they also pay the higher environmental price for it because they're the first ones to uh, be impacted by the climate crisis. So that was really a moment where I've been thinking, okay, so what I've been doing was the exact opposite of what I was trying to do. <laughs> and I think in these in these approaches of um, questions related to environmental impact, um, awareness is really key. It's really the first step. So um, the idea that, okay, you start seeing things 
through this lens and then everything looks different. And often this, this awareness is really not part of the conception and realization of digital services at this point. And that really should change, I think. So when you start considering these questions of environmental footprint or impact, the second step after becoming aware of it would be to identify the elements that um, you need to account for in your, let's say, environmental budget. So what, what will count? What will have an, a footprint? So generally, um, considering now um, what I've been uh, talking about anything that allows to have access to text, like archiving, publishing, editing. These um, elements of the environmental budget would be, for instance, uh, personal, so people working, buildings, transportation, and IT infrastructures, such as, for instance, data centers, or just simply the computers that we use at work. And when you consider um, all this, for instance, the computer or the data center, and you start measuring their environmental footprint, you have to take three aspects in consideration, which are the three phases of their, of their uh, life cycle. The first phase is the production, the second is use, and the third is end of life. So if you consider any digital um, 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 device, um, actually what is most costly uh, from an environmental point of view, is the production phase. So whatever you do, the production is the one phase that will have the most damaging um, impacts. And then you have the use phase, in which you have to take into account not just uh, the, the device itself, but also the electricity that you're going to need to make it work. And then comes the phase of the end of life. And right now, we don't have reasonable recycling schemes for all of these digital devices. So you see that at every level, it, at every phase, when you consider the digital devices, it's really like, ah, there's no way I can do this right. <laughs> um, so, and this can be um, somehow measured. So when it comes to production, you can gain concrete information on the impact of the production of your device on biodiversity, on water resources, etc. For the use phase, you can measure the electricity that you'll be using. And for the end of life, it's more complicated to really know what the impact is. But what is sure is that archive, publishing houses, libraries, all have these items come into the equation, personal buildings, transportation, IT devices, infrastructure, but with different ways of combining them. Um, the general idea is that if they want to reduce their environmental footprint, they will have to reduce their activity because that's the only way to reduce any of these budget posts, basically. And the difficulty is that nowadays, the tendency is still one of growth and development. So for instance, funding schemes for research projects or even for library projects are usually based on innovation and on the ideas that you have to do more and more um, while achieving the reduction, reduction of the environmental uh, footprint should instead mean fostering activity reduction, less is better, and fostering the reuse of information and of infrastructure. So that's what I've tried to do with my digital scholarly edition. Um, and um, I've been um, working in the sense that my colleague Elena Pierazzo has been 
explaining in the following words. She said, okay, we are used to have digital scholarly editions that are haute couture, so really tailored for each text. And we have more to think in terms of prêt-à-porter, so some standardized way that is easier to share, easier to reuse. So that's really how we can move in the way we present uh, text on digital platforms to see how we can adapt to more frugal tools, to shared platforms and to reuse facilitations. That means that we really need a clear shift in the prioritization, but also um, um, emphasize standardizations uh, standardization processes that will help uh, achieving long-term sustainability, um, which is also a way of rethinking the history of literature somehow in the way we are developing these schemes to archive and to publish long-term, uh, on the long-term, uh, these texts in the digital context, we are somehow canonizing some texts rather than others, these texts that will stay longer. And I think it's a fascinating challenge for historians of literature to consider that the technical choices that we are making now to reduce the impact of the text that we will be preserving will mean that these texts will stay longer and will still be there when the others are gone and that we are deciding on what is staying. So basically we are selecting. Yeah, that is such a fascinating, um, I, I guess, like a set of decisions to realize the impact of. Um, and it's making me think about all the various proprietary software I've had to download on my computer to read <laughs> things from different publishers who have all created their own strange e-reader platforms. And if my device no longer supports their program, then I have to exactly. upgrade, you know, so it's like this, and they they don't think about what they're doing. They, they are <laughs> exercising a certain kind of power and authority, but they don't think about what they're doing to the longevity of that work, which is, um, or maybe they do. Also interesting. <laughs> also an interesting thing to um, to realize. So then you discuss uh, in the last part of this book how um, how environmental issues can transform text dissemination, specifically through the example of this book. And I was so fascinated by the way you listed all of the decisions that you made. They really made me reconsider decisions I am making about a, a current project that will only live digitally. And I would love if you could explain some of those decisions and how they were uh, influenced by environmental impact. So my, my idea with this book was to transition to a more environmentally friendly way of doing my job as a researcher and as a teacher also. So yeah, I decided to reflect on the production of the book itself um, as a way to engage in this transition somehow. And there the choice of the publisher was really essential. So um, open book publishers gave me the possibility to provide a LaTeX file. So that's not the office suite. Um, they also offer long-time archiving and long-time accessibility through a distributed network of long-established libraries, um, and they do that in a stable and not resource-intensive format, which is XMLTI. Okay. Um, so basically, my book is online, and you can order print-on-demand, so the copies are published um, um, on the fly, basically. And the other thing that open book publishers provides 
is an excellent aggregation performance through the metadata. So they're in meta catalogs and most of their work um, deals with that or has to do with that. And that's really in the spirit of reusable and distributed infrastructures that are needed to reduce the environmental footprint. So while I was working on the book too, I try to think about my own way of working. And there was first the simple ways of limiting my emissions, for instance. So I, I've um, avoided flying since 2019, so I'm not flying, that's one first way. Um, and working with the book, I also avoided printing, I avoided working online, I avoided transferring data when, I, when it was not necessary. So uh, these are really, minimal things. It's it's not impacting too much, but it still makes a difference when you are doing that consciously, basically. Um, then I really made the effort of analyzing my work, all my all of my work steps and see how I could measure the impact and reduce it. But my idea was also not to become too obsessive. So the goal was not to be to have a fully disruptive approach and do everything differently. But the idea was more, okay, how can I actually adapt my current practice? Because I've been doing my scholarly work this way for 25 years. I'm not going to do everything differently from one day to the next to be in a more adaptive perspective. So my general conclusion after really measuring every single step of producing the book and seeing uh, what would come um, into what would be would have to be taken into account again all of these transportation and buildings i've been working on and it infrastructure i've been relying on my conclusion is that actually it is possible to do it and the effort is quite minimal compared to the general gain um in the sense that you become become more aware of what is superfluous in the way you um, work on a daily basis. And what I must say also that I, I was really afraid that it would be a bit suicidal somehow in terms of scholarly visibility. <laughs> But actually, in the classic sense of scholarly visibility, my citation index is still up, so all is good. <laughs> uh, that's terrific. Yeah, and I I was also just um, thinking about the the descriptions you made of just like the kind of digital files you worked with and being conscious of not using a lot of footnotes and not including images, which... Mm -hmm as you described, was actually very difficult. Like it would have been easier to communicate some things with images. Um, it made me think a lot about the um, those simple choices we make and how we communicate our scholarship and what impacts that has outside of what we usually think about. Yeah, well, also it's this idea with also that, you know, in the end, text will be more permanent than image because it's more frugal as a digital format. So that was really a choice for longevity. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, I've taken a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share about this book that I didn't think to ask about or anything you'd like to share about new projects that you're working on now that you've wrapped up this book? 
So one thing I would like to do is to thank my copy editor because I came to her as a non-native speaker and I said, okay, Elizabeth, I really want to make this book accessible for anybody, not just scholars. And it's been a huge amount of work for her to transform a manuscripts from this non-native manuscript to something that is so easy to read. And so really it has, it has really... Well, I, I, I like it. She has done a lot to it. So her name is Elizabeth Franken. And I really, really uh, would like to thank her here. Um, and also the process of writing the book, the process of publishing the book and ha um, having published the book um, has been also for me a process to become aware that changing my scholarly practices is actually not enough. <laughs> uh, there are limits to what can be done at an individual level, be it, uh, be it in the scholarly context or in any other context, actually also in the private, um, my, in my everyday life. Um, and discussing this question of text dissemination, you look at something that has a global impact, that has dis dissemination schemes that go all over the planet, and you realize that with your individual efforts, you will have very limited leverage. So my personal takeaway from the book is that adaptation is good and I've been trying to show how to do that, but um, that will not suffice. <laughs> and if we want to actually bring growth to a halt and really reduce human-made environmental harm, it needs much more disruptive methods <laughs> than that. So Right now, there are two dimensions of what I do. And I think keeping with the scholarly work on this topic is very, very important. So working on these training schemes to reduce impact in research and heritage, it really has become really the core of my scholarly activity, but also um, I've turned to activism to act on a more general level, more general social level, because uh, I have the feeling that I get very different leverage. And my personal point of view on that is that both aspects are actually essential if I want to be coherent as a scholar. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, well, once again, today I've been speaking with Anne Bayot, author of From Handwriting to Footprinting, Text and Heritage in the Age of Climate Crisis. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you're listening to New Books Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.